Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Dr. Mark Jamison, who's been a non-resident senior fellow with us at AEI since 2014, where he researches technology's impact on the economy, telecom, and FCC issues. He's also the director and Gunter professor of the Public Utility Research Center at the University of Florida's Warrington College of Business. Dr. Jamison has served on the FCC transition team for President-elect Trump and as a special advisor to the chair of the governor of Florida's Internet Task Force and as president of the Transportation and Public Utilities Group. Earlier, he was a manager of, the re- of regulatory policy at Sprint, head of research for the Iowa Utilities Board, and communications economist for the Kansas Corporation Commission. Thanks so much for joining us on Banter, Mark. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Well, we're very glad to have you, Mark, because you are right in the middle of some really hot issues concerning technology and the economy and antitrust and government regulation. And some of those issues are sources of division among, you know, longtime sort of right of center people who have sort of turned on each other. And the great thing about Mark, Phoebe, is that he he keeps us true. He keeps Mm -hmm. us true to our principles. At least that's how I see it. Um, but uh, in the in the in the back and forth of banter, Phoebe and I have an agreement that we trade off and who gets to ask the first question, because sometimes the person who asks the first question then asks all the questions. <laughs> it's been known to happen. <laughs> and it's, but it's Phoebe's turn. So she's going to start out. Great. Uh, yeah. So to right, open open up our conversation today, I just thought maybe you could give us a quick lay of the land, because there's so much happening on big tech regulation Um, And so I think that sometimes the different efforts to crack down on big tech all kind of get muddled and mixed together. So I was hoping hoping that you could give us an overview of um, the efforts that are going on at the FTC versus the DOJ versus Congress. Oh, my. Well, um, (laughs) an easy softball first question. (laughs) Who's responsible for what or who can do the most damage? Well, at the 50,000 foot level, we have a convergence of ideology and irritation, if you will, where there's, there's been a, a growing movement of people who simply see large business as inherently bad. And they really think that the government should be in charge of how these businesses are shaped and, and just breaking them up if they just, just get too, too large from their perspectives anyway. And it doesn't require and it doesn't include any really sophisticated thought. It's about that that basic. Um, And then you've got also people who feel like that some of the companies haven't done well for them, or at least some of the people in the companies haven't done well for them. So, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, he had a gentleman that he worked closely with from Harvard, and he had an early investor, and they have both now written books against Mark Zuckerberg. Um, they, they've, they've kind of, they say that it's not personal, but they really have turned on, on him very, very specifically. Uh, and then we have, of course, the conservatives believe that the, the tech companies are working against them in how their content is moderated and changed or suppressed or kicked off of some of the various platforms. So that's driving people to action. On the congressional side, that has manifested itself in several pieces of legislation that would try to, they use the terms rein in, but that's not really it. It's to take control 
they would, the government would be in charge of, of much of how these businesses work. So on the one hand, it, it's things like if you're Google and you want to promote something in search that you do, you're, you're just not allowed to do that. Um, or Amazon saying we've got this, you're looking for this product and, and we've got one, just, just what you're looking for and here it is. They wouldn't be allowed to do that. And, and Apple wouldn't be able to say things like, you know, we're going to control how the iPhone works. It's going to be amazingly smooth, seamless experience. Uh, this, this legislation says, nah, -uh, it's not so fast. Um, you're going to have to let other people take control of your app stores, for example, or at least have their own on there, or people will be able to put software on their iPhone without any kind of approval or, or super or, or oversight from Apple. So it's, it's really trying to change what some of these business models are like. And then there's, of course, the antitrust attorneys, the authorities in this case. Um, Federal Trade Commission is going after Facebook and saying that uh, yeah, Facebook is, has market power and discriminates badly in this, uh, what they call the personal social networking service. And then the Department of Justice with some state attorneys, generals, Attorney General is going after Google, um, claiming that it has market power in search and um, is using that to damage rivals. So that's that's a very high level overview, but that's, that's the essential parts of what's going on. So I want to follow up on the bigness part because uh, this is a long-standing uh, discussion that goes back, includes including a you know a prominent AI scholar, Robert Bork, I think. Where the antitrust argument, and, and Mark, please correct me if I get this wrong, turned on an impact on the consumer. And regardless of how big, what mattered was, was the combination or the size detrimental to the consumer. Um, but but yeah. uh, the new people want to want to change that. Could you just explain what the what the where that debate is and and, and where do you think it's going to lead? Well, they, they want to take us back to a time when we didn't have a good way of thinking about the antitrust concerns. So this goes back well over a century ago, where we had changes in technology, including the technology of management, that suddenly allowed very, very large firms to exist. And Louis Brandeis was a prominent uh, player in this space. He didn't think that there was any way that a large firm could be well managed. And so he encouraged Congress, he encouraged a couple of presidential candidates and then as when they were president to go after these companies. Let's have some laws and kind of break up these big companies. And so that's where antitrust kind of emerged from. But there wasn't an economic analysis behind it. Uh, the economists just hadn't thought a lot about this. So all the, the work on monopolies up to, until that time had been the ones that uh, talking about the problems when the government creates or sanctions a monopoly. The, the kind of somebody developing a large firm just hadn't been on the radar screen to speak of. That gave us all kinds of, of fairly loose and free activities in antitrust. And sometimes it was quite personal. So Robert Bork, and he thought about this, and he looked at it and he said, you know, by now, this is the 1980s, we've learned a lot about how markets work and how firms behave. And we now know how to analyze what 
the impacts of different types of firms and different sizes of firms and, and what those impacts might be. In fact, we can separate it out between what are the impacts on firms and what are the impacts on consumers. And if you go back and read Adam Smith, who's the one that explained to us what capitalism is, free markets are, he said, you know, the reason these businesses exist are for consumers. And, and Robert Bork said, yeah, I agree with that. And antitrust should be about the benefits of consumers. So he took on that issue. And over a few years, that became kind of the mantra in antitrust and has been for a long time. That bothers some people because, one, it puts economists in the driver's seat of looking at antitrust issues because now it's analytical. We can very much specify exactly what we're looking at, and it requires economic skills to do that. And then it doesn't, it doesn't take you to having small firms. A very large firm could be very beneficial for consumers. And that in particular has bothered a lot of people. So you'll see a lot of economic research articles that will say, look how big businesses have become. That must be a failure of antitrust. But the, the, so we need to attack big firms, but they've gotten their reasoning in a circle where they're saying, look, firms are big, um, that must be bad, so we need to break them up, but they're right back to where we were, just not working through who really benefits and who does not from the way that, that markets are structured. So I want to get back to that part about who really benefits and, and what the implications of taking down these big companies would be to consumers, to the economy. Uh, to employ employees. Um, but before I do that, tell us what the political terrain is, because aren't you facing um, these concerns from both political parties, both Republicans and Democrats on these issues, especially about bigness? I mean, it, you know, you'd think in the, that in our normal, that it would be people on the left that are always afraid of large concentrations of wealth. But Republicans are joining that fight, too. And, and what's that like? And, and is that all about the politics of canceling President Trump on Twitter? Or is it also about social issues and the enormous influence these companies have on our culture? Well, it's, it's hard to know what's in people's minds. Yeah, I can hear what they say, but it's, it's hard to get behind it. Yeah. But the things that I, I hear um, are some of the things that, that you just alluded to that these companies are awfully large. Um, and, and maybe that's a worry. That's certainly important on the Democrat side. They don't like somebody being kind of beyond their reach, um, is my impression anyway. Uh, because that's a, from every solution I hear from their side, it's about the government running how the firm is going to work, how the market's going to be structured. It, it's, it's fairly extensive control. So you think that that must be their real concern is, is the locus of control. On the Republican side, when I hear the, the anger over sides, it really seemed to start when they got a sense that Facebook was siding with the Democrats on content and Twitter was siding with the Democrats on content and Google as well. That is really where the size issue seemed to, to come from. Now they might have concerns now, maybe some allies in small business, that uh, feels that, that they can't compete with the big ones. So there may be some of that, but that's not where I saw it. That's not how I saw it evolve. Um, now, I, I have a follow-up on that. What is the impact on consumers 
or the economy or employees that would come from reducing the sizes of these companies or over or regulating them more gradually. I mean, just just point point the draw the 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 scary scenario. If these people get their way, what? Okay, there are basically three things that I think about. One is that if you're concerned that the companies are controlling the dialogue, the content, and how it's shared and distributed, if you give that over to the government, it gets worse. Yeah. Uh, because they talk about you know, having sort of, of government standards, government approval of how content will be moderated. And that is, I can't see that going well. Yeah. Um, pe people that are in power almost always, in my understanding of history, I'm an economist, not a historian, but my understanding of history, they almost always, when they get a chance to control content, control it to their benefit mm -hmm. and not to others. So that becomes, that's one thing that, that I find very troubling. Um, another for consumers is that it seems to, to it seems to escape the understanding of most of the advocates for regulation of the big tech companies that regulation almost always leads to entrenchment of the large incumbents. Yeah. We've got a pretty good set of research out there that shows that regulation benefits the large, harms the small. Uh, if, you, if you look at the patterns over the past 20 or so years, we've seen an increase in large companies and a decrease in small companies. And if you chart that along with the amount of regulation, they go right hand in hand. And, and then you do the you know, more sophisticated statistical analyses, it turns out, yeah, that's, that's true. It's not just an illusion. Um, so I think in, in thinking that we'll get more competition if we just regulate it, no, we'll actually probably get less. And we'll get less innovation as well. And then there's just the issue, the third thing, just the issue of, of how do then the industries evolve if they're restructured. So what happens if we break up an Amazon? There's actually a bill that would do this and effectively turn it into an eBay. Well, you probably wouldn't end up with two Ebays. You'd probably end up with just one. And there's a lot of people that prefer Amazon to eBay. Mm -hmm. So the consumers get a lot less. And if, if, we decrease the profitability of Google making its search engine great. You're not going to have quite as great a search engine. And, and so as you look at the things, oh, and, and another one that really is concerning is this, some of the things that they want to do with, the, with um, Apple and its, its app stores. Um, that raises all kinds of cybersecurity issues that Apple right now, the iPhone is very secure, but that may not stand um, under the, what the, the legislators are thinking about. So that to all the people who love how easy and smooth that iPhone works, it won't be that way in the future. It'll look a lot like Android. And so will we have both an Apple, and excuse me, an iPhone and an Android? Probably not, because if you try to make them look the same, one of them will go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a point that I think is often missing in dialogue around this. It seems like people think that these companies will keep what makes them special, but just be regulated. And I think that that trade-off isn't uh, what people think about enough. Um, I wanted to ask, 
Um, for those that are worried about uh, big companies or even, you know, the CEOs of big companies being, uh, you know, playing too big of a role in, in shaping discourse, if kind of Twitter is our new public square, um, those that are worried about um, free speech in that in that area, how would you recommend that they um, kind of voice those concerns? Would you suggest that they look at other apps? Um, is, is the burden on the consumer to kind of refrain from participating in these forums if they feel like they're unfair? Well, yes, consumers need to choose. The, these platforms don't exist without the consumers. Uh, when you think about Twitter, you think about Facebook, you think about any, any of the others, they're only there because we choose to use them. If we choose to use something else, they go away. This has been the consequence of competition between platforms as far back as you, you want to take that. The consumers have enormous power here. Because these companies, they have some network effects. Um, they have uh, you know, some habits built into to the users, but they're very vulnerable in when they start doing things wrong. So look at how fast TikTok has grown. And it's taking customers from Instagram and Facebook has flattened out. So competition can work really well here. And I would like for consumers to do that, uh, to continue. Instead of saying, I would like to you know, turn Twitter into a, to a uh, utility, and all you're going to get is Twitter. Um, but if you make some choices, then you're going to continually evolve and, and get something better. So I want to follow up on that a little bit because that, that sounds like uh, the answer to those of us who come from the traditional newspaper world. Mark, you don't know this about me, but I started out as a newspaper reporter and editor of a, of a newspaper. And I had to face the concerns about libel and slander that come with the rules of, of being a journalist. And I've always, I am a tiny bit sympathetic to people that uh, look over at Facebook and and see that that uh, material can be broadcast and put on Facebook and be read by millions of people, but be um, libelous. And yet, Facebook faces no consequence for that, no responsibility. Or if I got that wrong, are do are they overprotected in the in the question of 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 bad speech or illegal speech or slanderous or libelous speech? Well, that's unclear. Now, you're talking with an economist and not an attorney. So I hear attorneys disagree on this. Some view well, what you're talking about is what we call Section 230 that says that they're not liable for what other people put on their platforms. But we do know that they shape that and, and they give different things different priorities and there are things they allow and they don't allow. And so... Supreme Court Justice Clarice Thomas has argued that we've been misunderstanding 230. He says it doesn't really go as far as protecting them from all liable uh, um, and, and, other, and slander and such as we've thought. And I start hearing some attorneys come around. So if it's been, oh, if they've been overprotected, it might be that the courts have just been misinterpreting things. Hmm. Um, I've argued that, especially on the business side, that there needs to be some accountability that if someone builds a business on your platform and you do something as a platform provider that destroys that business without being clear on what they did that you didn't like, 
and are breaking the terms and rules that are conditions that you've had, that should not be legal. That There should be a real problem there. I'm not sure I follow you exactly. What do you mean if I build my business on a platform? Are you talking about a, a restaurant or a, a something that sells something and some customer gives it a bad review and that destroys the business? So there are people who build a business on Facebook or build a business on YouTube. YouTube is easier to understand. There are people that they are content providers, they're commentary providers, and they they go directly to the platform. YouTube. They don't. They don't. There's no intermediary. Platform. They build their entire business on yeah. YouTube. Yes, and then YouTube will say, "Yeah, we we're we're, we're going to demonetize this particular video, or we're going to reject this particular video." Oh, I see. Without much of an explanation, and sometimes it happens with no warning whatsoever. Um, you do that very much, or you just kick the person off because you don't like what they're saying. That's a real problem. Um, so, the, but the but those particular businesses are now reacting. They're going to locals. They're going to um, other types of platforms where that type that control is not there. So the marketplace is working. But if you've invested yeah, to build your brand and build your content on my platform, and I kick you off, and you can't tell what you did wrong, and I won't explain to you what you did wrong. I think I should pay something for that. Uh, one other question about the relationship between these companies and congressional and political action. We had a guest at AI last week, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's written a book called Woke Inc. And he claims that the way in which the CEOs of these big companies are defending themselves against um, uh, overregulation from the left, at least, is they're, they're expressing allegiance to left policies and left positions, climate change, various attitudes towards social issues. And that that's sort of, because they're so powerful and they're so big and they're joining the woke sort of philosophy, let's call it that, that, that um, and again, you're an economist, not a social or political commentator, but do you buy into that? Do you think it's correct that they're defending themselves by expressing fealty to left-wing causes? I don't know if um, they're doing it for that reason or just because they truly believe. Yeah. If I've, 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 I've uh, served in, t in uh, committee overviewing, reviewing, excuse me, um, something one of the tech companies does. I won't name, name the company. And it's, it's, they initiated it, so I, I've gone in there and, and talked with them about some of the things. And I could tell it, it took them quite a while to get comfortable with me. They were really concerned about this conservative, market-oriented guy. That, that worried them. And then I also keep in mind the things like there's this, this famous video that came out right after Trump was elected president of an of a all-hands meeting in Google. People were crying, just devastated that such an evil person could ever become president of the United States. What was really interesting in that conversation is there was never a thought that anyone in Google would disagree with the sentiments that were being expressed. Uh, Google was, was one mind in their minds. And so I, I get the sense that for the most part, they're really true believers. Although, mm -hmm. if you listen to the hearings and the Senate and the House where these companies are brought in, uh, it's very clear that, and they've been open about it, that 
some of our elected representatives are really trying to pressure these companies to side with them on what is and is not misinformation, um, in, in part to control the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one question I wanted to ask on a slightly different topic, um, you also have researched extensively into broadband, um, and there's a sizable amount, I think $65 billion allocated for broadband internet development in the new infrastructure bill becoming law. Um, so I wanted to get your take on uh, that and if you think that that's a promising development. Whether it's a promising development depends upon what's done with it. The way that we've handled that type of money coming from legislation in the past is that we've held beauty contests where some government entity, in this case it's going to be a lot of states, in the past it's been a combination of states and federal, sometimes just federal, they will say, we've got broadband money. Tell us something cool you would do with it. And we want you to be sure to serve the, the poor, the underserved, marginalized groups. That's, that we're, that's what we're at looking for. Tell us, tell us what you want to do. Those kinds of beauty contests, the, the competition, because there's so many dimensions of it, and, and I've served on review committees for these, these types of applications before, it's really clear that once the technical analysts like me have done our work, then the congressmen and the senators get on the phone and start saying, you know, I really think that this particular application is just amazing. Uh, it really should be funded. And that's gone, uh, the consequences have always been terribly poor for us. Um, so we go back and, and we've had studies, scholarly studies, of what was done in the stimulus bill, in the, the uh, Obama's uh, first, ad, first administration on broadband. And certainly several billion dollars was spent. We are unable to measure any change in the amount of broadband available. Hmm. We've also had studies of what was done through the uh, US Department of Agriculture, same legislation. And again, you look at the money was spent, but we can't find where anybody was ever held accountable. Some of the companies just went out of business, some didn't do much. Um, I can't find anybody ever being called on the carpet for that. And it's, so I'm very troubled that things could go really poorly. It's up to the U.S. Department of Commerce, NTIA, within it, and then the states. And so when I talk with them, what I encourage them to do is say, okay, be very, very specific on what you're asking for. You want broadband of this quality in this place, and we want number, this number of people buying it. And we will take, we will hold an auction and see who's going to do best for that product, who will do it for the least amount of money. And then, no, and then whoever wins the auction, then say, all right, that's great. You are now the person to go do that. Go do it. And when you have delivered the product and you've gotten people signed up, then we will release the money to you. Mm -hmm. One of the mistakes we've made in the past is we've given people money and say, go forth and do good. And they go forth, but they may not do much good. So let's do like you and I treat our money and not pay people until they've delivered a product. So that's a, that's a very helpful summary of the problem because um, uh, the, uh, the broadband issue is not a problem in cities. It seems to me, really, it's not a big problem in 
suburban areas. It's a rural problem, or maybe I'm wrong about this. And it's a, 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 a also as a, in, a, in terms of the percentage of the population, because of the effectiveness of a lot of companies in this these industries. You know, if we go back 25 years, the availability of broadband has grown dramatically. I mean, and millions yep. and millions and millions. High, high, 90% of Americans have it, it seems to me. I may be wrong about that. You correct me, Mark. But it's no, rural it's America. 80, it's, 80 plus percent, yeah. Yeah, so the market did a good job up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And as hard as we try, we keep getting it wrong on how to bring it to, you know, rural America. Is that right? And, and your solution, this auction solution, tell us how you're going to get it to these rural parts of America at what price, and then and we're not going to pay you till you do it. Does sound like the best mm-hmm. way to make it happen. Yes, and it's not new. This is the best practice around the world for the past 25 years. It's just new in the United States. The Federal Communications Commission. Um, it started under the Obama administration. They started working out how it would work. It was first implemented uh, during the Trump administration. They actually distribute broadband subsidies in high-cost rural areas using that kind of a reverse auction. And the studies have shown that the amount of they saved 70% of what they used to spend to subsidize broadband. Now that wasn't a, they weren't working a grant program. It was an even uh, stranger system that they used to use, but they saved tremendous amounts of money uh, with that type of system. So we know that those systems work. It's worked in every country that I know of that uh, has been used in. But there is there, there is one other aspect that I, I need to make sure to mention is that it's not just the high cost rural areas. It is actually uptake of broadband by low income households. Traditionally, we've thought about that as just a pricing issue. If we make it cheap enough, they'll buy it. And so we've tried that. Again, under the Obama administration, there were experiments done that effectively gave people broadband, and they still wouldn't take it. So we do not understand why it is that broadband doesn't fit their lives, um, but it doesn't somehow. Uh, but it's still valuable, and we know it's valuable from all the things we've just gone through with the, with the uh, pandemic. So also when I talk with the different government entities, I tell them we, we need to study and listen to, listen to these, these uh, poor communities and these marginalized groups because something in there is not working for them. We're failing and we just can't afford to fail anymore. We've got to figure this out and do something that really works for them. Uh, two last questions I have. One is very specific and I'm just curious about it. And the other is very general. And so I'll do the specific one first. You mentioned, you know, the great, you know, we have an economist here at AI, not you, Mark, but another one who calls these companies the crown jewels of the American economy. You know, they've produced more wealth, hired more people, produced more great products uh, than many of the other great companies in America. And, of course, they are, some of them are the biggest companies. But you didn't mention Microsoft. Does Microsoft not face any of these pressures? Microsoft has learned to keep its head down, is my <laughs> understanding. Um, I am old enough to remember when, my, when antitrust cases were filed against Microsoft. And Microsoft had no lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Uh, prior to being brought, uh, antitrust charges being brought against it. Um, now it has a whole lot of lobbyists. And that was the same for the other tech companies. They had no lobbyists either until you know, government regulation became a, a threat to them. Then they've hired lots of lobbyists. 
But Microsoft, I've listened to, uh, to Mr. Gates give talks. I've heard other people give talks. They are very, very careful about what they do and how they do it and what they say um, to try and stay under the radar screen of the regulators. They're a very large company, um, but they've, they've learned something about how this system works. And the last thing is, so what are you most worried about? What do you, what do you, of these, these winds blowing that are very anti-big tech, what, do you, what is the thing that both uh, is most troubling and most likely to happen that, 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 that you're thinking about ways to argue against? What I am most troubled by is this, this very simple and static mindset or yeah, simple mindset of a static world in which once you're large, then you're a problem and we've got to regulate you or break you up or something. Um, that destroys so much. There are, it, even Europe doesn't do it that badly, but Europe does not have any great tech innovators because of the intensity of regulation. We've learned that from some of the regulations they have taken on, the amount of tech innovation in Europe drops as soon as that's over. The, the economic research is really, really clear on that. Um, so that's my biggest concern is that those ideas win because they'll spread to other industries as well. And then we have real problems, of problems not just of not producing great companies in this country, but also handing more control of the economy over to people who don't really have skin in the game. Their, their job is winning elections, yeah. and um, they don't make great business decisions. Nothing against them. Um, we all vote for them, so it's our fault. But that's <laughs> the way the system works. I don't know, though, that that is going to have success. Uh, someone pointed out to me just a week or so ago that if you look at the legislation that is in Congress, um, on the House side is the easiest way to see it. There's five or so bills that were in the House um, sub I'll get the name wrong, so ignore what I call it. They were voted out of committee, in, in, and it was, it was a bloodbath and getting it done. It was it took a long time, lots of arguments over language. They got it out of committee and there is no plan for a floor, floor vote. Um, it's unclear that the anti-tech, the anti-bigness community has enough votes to get their bills through Congress. So they may There's be a lot of sound and fury. Government appointees. Yeah. Yeah. So and they may just be relying upon the, the, uh, the bureaucracy to fulfill what they want done. While we're on that, do you think your research, your scholarship, your writing is having an impact on, on the decision-making on these issues? I can't say that I'm having an impact on decision-making. When I talk with people who are in the debates, the things that I talk about and my colleagues talk about seems to be very useful, but I'm not involved in the political arena. And some, a lot of this is politics. Something else I've grown to appreciate is that the ideas that we are combating now that didn't just come out of, out of um, whole cloth. Uh, if you read the books, there's been a concerted effort over 20 years or so of getting people in academia to write on these particular topics to get people with money to develop the, what you might loosely call think tanks, to advocate for some of these. 
I was very struck when I was reading one of the uh, anti-Zuckerberg books um, that the person actually got George Soros to go to Devos and talk about we need to break up big tech. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty powerful when you can get those kinds of megaphones and, and you know, getting some people in the Senate and such to, to be a megaphone for the ideas. That's not a game that I play in. If he's trying to help you get your word out. <laughs> that's a whole different level to have presidential candidates talking about this. They didn't come up with these ideas on their own. You know, these, these were things worked out. So we're and, fighting um, against... So we've... We're fighting against yeah, the dragon. We're fighting against something, yes. And in some sense, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining us, Mark. I do appreciate the, the great opportunities of working with AEI. Um, everywhere I go, when I say that I'm affiliated with it, it commands respect. And I really do value that. Uh, so the great work that all of you do and the opportunity to talk about these issues. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.